So most of us at, at some point in our life, we had, uh, as children, as middle schoolers, we had that picking of teams experience. I mean, two people uh, are, are chosen to pick the teams and everybody else lines up and they start saying, I want you on my team, I want you on my team, which is what you wanted to hear, right? You wanted to hear that you were on somebody's team and that they wanted you to be on their team and you're like counting off how close you were to the last person each time because you didn't want to be the last person, right? You, and if you're a guy, you didn't want to be picked after a girl, right? No, no offense to the girls. They're great athletes, and, and some of them are better athletes than guys. I have three daughters, and, and they'll whip your sons. <laughs> okay, I get that now. I mean, I totally, but when you're in middle school, you don't know that. Like, you don't think when you're in fifth grade, you don't think about girls being great athletes. You just don't want to be picked after a girl, so that was, that was always an uncomfortable time, and I just like, stirred up some of your worst memories for a few of you, and I apologize for that. But when we get into the story of Joshua, we're at the end of chapter five, uh, end of chapter five and there's kind of this picking of teams thing that goes on, something, something similar to deciding which team you're going to be on and who wants you on their team. It's kind of a strange conversation that takes place. Uh, if you haven't been with us, uh, the Hebrew children have wandered in the wilderness. They get to the promised land. They cross over Jordan. They kind of take care of some business that needed to be taken care of. We talked about last week. And then it, it's time for the fun to start, really. It's, it's time for the battle to start. And Joshua apparently is walking around one night, maybe scouting out the, the, the first place that they're going to do battle with. And, and this interesting thing happens in chapter 5, verse 13. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? In other words, which team are you on? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? Now, just a practical tip. If you're ever walking around at night and you, you bump into a large guy with a sword, it's always good to ask. Like, are you on my side or are you on somebody else's side? I kind of like to know where we stand here before things get started. And that's what Joshua does. Um, so are you with them or are you with us? With the enemy? A good team? Bad team? Who, who are you with? And the NIV and, and most... Contemporary translations do kind of a poor job at this point. They're trying to smooth out the conversation. I get that. And so the response that's recorded is neither. I'm not on anybody's side. Don't think of me that way. Actually, what the guy said was no, which had to be confusing to Joshua, right? Because Joshua's saying, it wasn't a yes-no question. I said, them, us. Let's say we're the blue team, they're the red team. Just say blue-red. I'll figure it out. But it wasn't yes or no. God says, no, I'm the commander of the Lord's army. And I think a couple of things that this guy was saying, and there's all kind of debate over who this guy was. He's obviously a a spiritual, supernatural representative of God, uh, the commander of the Lord's army. And what he's saying to Joshua is, is, Joshua, you're not in charge. Like, you don't get to ask questions. I, I want you to know, before we start the real battle here, Let's clear up something. You're not in charge. God's in charge. 
You're not calling the shots. God's calling the shots. And we need to settle that tonight before the sun comes up. We need to settle who's going to be in charge, and, and it's not going to be you. The question's really not, Joshua, am I on your side? The question is, are you going to be on my side? That's the thing about God, the, the commander of the Lord's army. If He shows up in your life, he, he didn't show up to be on your side. He showed up to be in charge. He didn't show up to kind of carry out your wishes, like give me three wishes and, and I'll carry those out for you. He, he showed up to tell you what you need to do. And a lot of times in our life, we like God being there, but we, we kind of want to get God on our side. Like, God, I want you to do the things that I'm thinking because i got this great plan in my mind. Here are the way I want things to work out, and here's how you're going to play a role in that. God, it's great that you're here. I want you to be on my side. But God doesn't come to be on our side. He comes to be in charge. Now, here's the cool thing. When we let God, <coughs> when we let God be in charge, we find out He's on our side. Like, when we obey Him, when we let Him call the shots, when we, when we really let Him be in control of our lives, we begin to realize as we live that out, oh, he's, He was on my side. I just had to give control over to Him. Instead of wanting him to be on our side, but still wanting to be in control, which is where most of us live. Right? Most of us spiritually, there's, there's this struggle in us because we want God on our side. We just don't want to give up control. And this conversation so beautifully paints the picture of, like, you don't, you don't get to be in charge. God is in charge. And that's going to be important because... God's going to ask the people to do some things that are fairly strange. You, you ever read the Bible, you ever hear a message, and, and think, well, that won't work. Well, that's not how people do it today. That's not how marriage works. That's not how relationships work. That's, that was then. This is now. It's 2016. Life is different. It comes down to the question of who's going to be in charge. And Joshua and the people that he's leading all have to figure this out. Because God's going to ask him to do some things that make no sense. So let, let's start by talking about what does make sense. There was a bit of a military strategy when they, when they went into the promised land. I've got a map. It sort of shows where they were. They were on the plains of Moab. They cross over the Jordan River. And they're, they're camped a few miles from Jericho. Now here's the plan. The plan is to cut a, a, a path straight across the country to take control of the middle of the country so that you separate the, the northern end from the southern end. That way you don't have to fight both of them at once. So the military strategy is we're going to establish control over the middle of the country, then we're going to fight the southern part, and then we're going to fight the northern part, and they can't join forces, and they can't resupply each other and gang up against us. So this clear military strategy that's going to go into this, but in order to do that, the first city they had to take was Jericho. You see it on the map. It's the first place they're going to come to. It's the first battle, the first engagement once they step into the promised land. Now, there's something significant about the first battle that we face. Personally, spiritually. For the, for the, for the Hebrew children, this was going to establish their confidence level emotionally this was going to be important for them. They were going to have a sense of, God's in this, we're, we're, this is going to work. Their confidence was going to, going to rise or fall based on this, 
first battle, maybe even their faith, maybe even their trust in God, was going to move up or down based on how well they did in this first battle. Here's the thing about first battles. Just call it the principle of the first battle. If I fight and win the first battle, it makes the other battles easier or possibly even obsolete. I mean, there may be battles I don't even have to fight if I win the first one. If I win convincingly this first battle that I'm having to face, then the rest of them get easier and perhaps some of them even go away. How does this work How does this work in our personal lives, in our spiritual lives? Well, first of all, we all have battles. Even though we're followers of Jesus, uh, even though we're believers, maybe you've been believers a long time, brand new, maybe you're still not sure if you're going to follow Jesus or not. When you become a follower of Jesus, all of your struggles don't disappear. We still have battles on the inside, temptation and and habits and sin and disobedience. We, We often fight battles for relationships. Like relationships are hard sometimes, and we have, to, we have to work through some of that relationally. We, we fight battles emotionally, like discouragement and hopelessness and, and depression, anger, anxiety, all of those emotional battles. Some of us are following Jesus for a long time, and we would say, yeah, I still deal with some of that. I still have to fight some of that. So there's still battles in our life. And usually, there's one key battle with each of those areas. There's one thing that if I, if I was serious about taking that on, I could eliminate a lot of the other battles. Sometimes it's the one that's right in front of us, right? It's like real obvious. If I just take care of this, then all these other things I'm struggling with, I can handle. And sometimes you have to kind of look. You have to kind of look into that area of failure or area of struggle and ask, what is causing me to keep repeating this cycle? What's, what's the thing that if I changed, it would break me out of this cycle? I read a great book a couple of months ago. It's called Essentialism, and it's not a spiritual book necessarily. It's a personal development, kind of time management, goal-setting book. But there's a chapter on facing challenges and obstacles. And the author encourages us to ask this question whenever we face a challenge. What is the obstacle that, if removed, would make the majority of other obstacles disappear? In other words, in this struggle that I'm having at work with somebody I work with, in my marriage, with my, with my kids, personally in, in temptation that I'm dealing with, What's the one thing I could do that would make this whole thing better, right? Usually we don't have to ask, okay, what are the 10 different things I need to do to fix this? Usually there's a key piece, and if we find that key piece, and if we win that battle, it changes everything else about the situation. John Trent has written a book called The The Two-Degree Difference, which deals with kind of the same thing. How how, uh, much of an impact small changes in my life matter. If I never purchase the chocolate chip cookies at Kroger, I'm not going to eat a whole bag with a glass of milk at 10 o'clock at night, right? Because they're not there. Like if I would just not take it off the shelf and put it in the cart, if I would leave the Oreos in Kroger instead of bringing them home with me, then when 
I'm looking for a snack at 11 o'clock at night. I don't pour a bag of milk and eat the whole bag. Right? Now, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to buy the cookies personally. You, this is just an example. If you just win that first battle, if you win the first battle, you don't have all the other battles that come. So, sometimes it's, if I just don't go to that place, then I'm not going to be tempted with those things. I don't have to figure out, all right, I'm going to go there. Now, how, how am I going to be strong when I'm there? If you just don't go there, you don't have to be strong anymore. You don't have to figure everything else out if you just decide, I'm just not going there. I'm just not going to be around that person. I'm going to distance myself from that person because that person causes me to do these things that I know aren't good for me. And so I'm going to win the first battle, which is I'm just going to put some distance between me and that person. The unfriend button on social media may be your best friend. The unfollow, I mean, it's like one click. And that anger that you deal with every day when you're scrolling through your feed, the anxiety that builds up every time you're looking at social media, the jealousy, the attraction, the, hey, I could direct message, all of those battles, you don't even have to fight those. If you just click one button, you win. See, this is, this is the principle of first battles. Sometimes we're racking our brains about, i got to be stronger and how do I overcome? Maybe you don't need to overcome. Maybe you just need to get out. And stay away and win the first battle. Now, let me be honest with you. First battles are never easy. I mean, even that click of the button for a lot of us. There's an attraction. There's an addiction. There's a whatever about the the whole social media deal. And so even that, first battles are never easy. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. Now, the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went in. No, uh, no one went out and no one came in. I mean, it's, it's fortified. They know that Israel's coming. This is not going to be an easy battle, it doesn't appear. There's walls all the way around the city. That's the way first battles are. And they're intimidating. They're hard. And one of the reasons is because usually when there's an area of struggle in our life, we've, we've given it so much room that we've fortified some habits. We've built walls around a pattern of thinking. We've built walls away, away, around a way of reacting or acting or, or, or habits that we've allowed to just settle into our life and to blow those up. It's not an easy thing to do. First battles typically are pretty hard battles. But the, the second thing we learn from Joshua 6 is that God's willing to fight those battles for us. I and mean, we, don't, we don't wage these campaigns by ourselves. Look at verse 2. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its kings and its fighting men. God, God says, look, I, I'm going to win this if you'll do it my way. I'm going to win this. I can handle this in your life. I can, I can handle this walled city. I can handle this habit. I can handle this person. I can handle this temptation. I can handle this area, that, this cycle that you're in and you can't seem to get out of. I can handle that if you'll do it my way. Recurring theme in, Jer- in Jericho. We've come to it numerous times. It's simply God wins the battle, but the people still have to advance. 
That's what God's saying to Joshua. Look, I'll win, but you got to show up. You got to take this battle seriously. I am more than powerful enough. I am more than capable of handling this. And sometimes when it comes to these areas of struggles and disobedience and and emotions and, and thought life, we tap out, right? We give up. We step back. When there is a powerful God saying, now, look, if you'll just wade into this battle, I can help you win. See, the battle was not about how strong the army was. And it wasn't about how high the wall was. The battle was about obedience from the very beginning. You're going to do it, Mike? You're going to let me be in charge? You're going to face this the way I'm asking you to face this? At the core of the battles in your life and my life is the issue of obedience. Do we trust God enough to do it His way? Now, what God's going to ask Him to do makes no sense. Here it is in verse 3. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in the front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. And as much sense as cutting across the country and dividing the north and south, as much military sense as that makes, this makes no sense. How does walking around the city one time for six days and seven times on the seventh day, how does that matter in a military campaign? That wasn't God's question. God's question was, you going to do it my way? You going to let me lead the battle? You going to let me lead the charge? And when you read the rest of the story, they do it. And I would suggest, and some of you were here last week, I would suggest one of the reasons they obey at this point is because they've been picking up rocks and naming mountains and eating remembrance meals. See, they had gotten in this pattern of obedience. Here's the thing about obedience and disobedience. They both compound on each other. They both compound. As I obey God and I see His faithfulness over time, it makes me want to obey God more and obey God more. And disobedience works the same way. As I reject what God's doing in my life, as I, as I make my own decisions, as I push God out, disobedience has this way of compounding on itself as well. The proverb writer writes about this a lot. He calls it folly or the fool. And he says, look, folly just kind of builds on itself until you get to a point where you can't make the right decision. Give you a hundred options and you're going to always pick the worst one because disobedience has this way of compounding and you don't even see it but you're pushing God and rejecting God and doing things your way, and that just starts to build on itself. Here's a nation of people, and obedience has been compounding in their life day after day in the recent months. Day after day, they've been picking up rocks and naming mountains and eating meals together, remembering God's goodness and doing it God's way. And So when God says march around the city, they, they march around the city. Here's some things about the obedience of the people, Joshua's obedience in in Joshua chapter 6. One, it was immediate obedience. We find a a phrase that we saw earlier. It's the phrase, Joshua got up early the next morning. He took care of it right away. When God said, do it, he immediately, Joshua wanted to obey. We've got a picture of, of modern day 
Jericho. It's, the biblical Jericho is under all of that dirt that you see. That's the archaeological dig for Jericho. It probably wasn't even that big, but that's all where they've explored the, the uh, biblical city of Jericho. So as you can see, it's not that big. I mean, it's 15, 20 minutes, even if you're not walking really quickly. They, they could have knocked this out at any point during the day. Right? Could have got some breakfast. Done a little stretching. Nobody pulls a hamstring or anything. We just all stretch. We make sure we're warmed up. And then we'll go for our walk. Or they could have gone right before lunch, worked up an appetite. Could have waited till the sun started going down. It'd be cooler, nicer time, be a nice breeze. We could walk around the city at, during the evening. That's not what they did. Early the next morning. First chance they had to obey. Immediate obedience. Joshua and the people begin to obey what God has put into their heart. And a lot of times we're, we're bargaining with God instead of obeying God. We're, we're, we're trying, to, again, to get God over on our side or convince Him why we have a better way or, or we know better instead of early the next morning saying, okay, I know this is what God wants me to do. I'm going to start walking. It was immediate obedience, but there was consistent obedience. A lot of people who study this chapter think that because of the way the story is told, Joshua gave the instructions one day at a time. Even though he knew all seven days, he, he gave the instructions to the people one day at a time. So they get together on the first day, and Joshua says, this is the battle plan. We're going to put the Ark of the Covenant out front. We're going to put the trumpet players and the priests behind them. And then we're all going to march around the city. And you're not going to say anything. You're going to be absolutely quiet. We're going to make one loop and we're going to come back here. Day number two. What are we going to do today? Today we're going to put the Ark of the Covenant out front and the trumpet players and the priests. And you're going to walk behind them and you're not going to say anything. And we're going to make one loop around the city and we're going to come back. Day three. What are we going to do today? Today... Ark of the Covenant is going to be out front. Trumpet players and priests, you're going to walk behind them. One loop around the city. Day four. I think you know. Same thing as yesterday. Go do it. Day five. Consistent obedience. Without a need to say, um, this isn't working. I don't know if you noticed, but like nothing's happening. There's not been an earthquake. There's not a lightning bolt. There's been no battle. There's, I, I don't know what this whole thing is about. They just consistently, every day, did what God said. Now, a couple of qualities of consistent obedience. (coughs) Three qualities, waiting, walking, and silence. Waiting, walking, and silence. When God told them what to do, they, they did it, and they did it again the next day, and they walked and they went around the city and they just kept doing what God wanted them to do until He explained. They didn't demand explanations, apparently. They didn't begin to grumble and curse the darkness and say, this is crazy plan, God, this isn't working. I've tried it your way, now I'm going to do it my way. They're silent. They walked and they were crying. They didn't feel the need to, to let their enemies know that they were in trouble. They just walked around in silence. And, and I've, I've always wondered, maybe day one, day two, day three, you have all of these soldiers walking around your city in silence. That's kind of spooky, right? That would be kind of haunting if you're in Jericho standing on the wall and you, they're all walking and they're quiet. But I'm thinking by day three or four, they're starting to think you're not going to fight. 
So maybe they're beginning to yell at you. Maybe they're beginning to provoke you. I mean, that's the way it happens in Veggie Tales, right? So they're, they're calling to them from the wall. And they just walk. And they're quiet. And they don't feel the need to defend their actions. They, 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 they don't feel the need to get even or, or, or to yell back. They just walk. And that's, this is what obedience looks like in our lives. We're waiting on God. We're walking in obedience with the information that He's given to us up to this point. And we're quiet. We, we don't feel the need to tell Him how to do His job. We don't need, feel the need to respond to our enemies. We wait and we walk. We wait and we walk. Here's the thing about obedience in our life. When obedience fully matures in our life, we, we wait on the Lord silently as we keep walking faithfully. We wait on the Lord silently and we keep walking faithfully. And we don't tell Him how to do His job. And we don't try to defend ourselves. We just know what God's told us to do. And we walk faithfully, consistently, in obedience Immediate obedience, consistent obedience, and, and complete obedience. They did everything he told them to do. On the seventh day, they marched around seven times. The number seven appears 14 times in chapter 6. Seven in the Bible is the number of completeness. It was complete obedience, which was matched with complete victory from God. The complete obedience of their hearts. Help them see the complete victory that God was trying to win in them. Beginning in verse 15, we have that seventh day recorded for us. There's a word at the beginning of 15 and 20 that doesn't always get translated into English. It's not in the NIV version. In the King James Version, verse 15 begins this way, and it came to pass. Some of you are familiar with that language. And it came to pass. That's the word that actually starts 15 and 20, and we don't say, and it came to pass very often in, in our vocabulary. What it meant was it happened. The day came and it happened. Like God did what he said he would do. It, it happened. And if you have history with God, like if you've walked with God for very long, if you've prayed for things in your life, you know what it's like to walk and walk and not see anything happen. And pray and pray and not see anything happen. And hope and hope and not see anything happen. But that's not because God has forgotten you. If you've walked with God for very long, you've had verse 15 moments where you realize it happened. God answered. God opened the door. God said something. God changed something. God moved. And it happened. Verse 20 is the same thing when he begins to describe the battle. And it happened. All of that waiting, all of that praying, all of that walking, all of that silence. And it happened. I'm not suggesting that God does everything we want him to do. I am suggesting that when we walk faithfully with Him, when we walk consistently, obediently with Him, when we let Him be in charge, there will be days and seasons and moments where we look around and go, look what He did. It, it happened. As a matter of fact, the whole battle, the actual engagement, the physical battle, it's described in two verses, verses 20 and 21. Two verses. For an entire battle, almost as if the author was saying, well, of course God won. 
Like, I don't, why do I have to give you all the details? God said he was going to win. God won. That's the detail you need to know. God wins. And in our lives, God is still in the business of winning battles. God is still in the business of giving victory. And sometimes we have to walk and walk and pray and pray and not resist. We need to resist the urge to get angry and impatient and frustrated. God still wins battles. He just asks us to show up. Knowing that we never show up alone. We never walk alone. We never fight alone. We never engage alone. But the one who wins the victory is always walking with us. Let's pray. God, thank you for a story of faithfulness, a story of walking consistently, even when maybe they didn't understand the instructions, even when they didn't see results. They just walked, they just walked, and it happened. And there are people here this morning. And they're walking and praying. And they've been walking a long time, praying a long time. And they're anxious for it to happen. God, encourage their faith today. Strengthen their heart today. That you keep your promises. You don't break a single one of them. You give victory. You give hope. You still win battles. Across this room, there are people that are fighting some battles. Some of them are, are emotional in nature. They're, they're anxiety or, or discouragement. You can win. Some of them, they're relational. Relationships they're fighting for. And they've been walking and marching and, and praying. You can win. For some of us, it's it's habits and temptation. It's sin. That's what it is. And, and we've gotten in a cycle of ignoring it and explaining it and rationalizing it. When what we need to do is, is we need to defeat it. We need to let you win that battle in us. Help us to be obedient. That you will be glorified in the victories that are going to be won in our lives. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.